to VPG's Virtual Water Cooler Chat Podcast, where we share lessons and stories of women professionals to help empower other women and expand a greater circle of influence so we walk our journey with those who understand and appreciate us. Today, we'll talk with Dr. Katherine Workman about her journey as a scientist, a visionary, and a leader at National Geographic. The Vice President of Science at National Geographic, Catherine is a trained anthropologist. She has extensive experience in policy, strategy, management, metrics, and communications of international grant-making, biodiversity conversation, and combating wildlife trafficking. Catherine is also widely published in articles relating to conservation topics. She received her MA in Anthropology at the University of Colorado Boulder and her PhD in Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University. Good morning, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us for this virtual border cooler chat. I am so excited to have you on today's chat. Well, thank you, Ashley. It's my pleasure to get to speak with you. So let's start right with, we provide a pretty impressive version of your professional background. Would you mind sharing how you started your career as an anthropologist and also at National Geographic? Sure. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We've got to go back a few decades. Uh, so I, I started um, becoming interested in anthropology kind of, gosh, by chance, by complete happy coincidence that I took a class during college one summer just trying to fill credits. It was called The Human Animal. And it sounded fascinating. And uh, I took it with this professor named Bert Covert, who ended up becoming a influential human in my life. He really, beyond my parents, probably shaped my professional path more than any person I've met. Um, he was a phenomenal, is a phenomenal professor. He's recently retired, actually. So I guess I'll talk about him in the past tense, but he's very much alive. Um, he was a, a phenomenal professor and just really opened my eyes to the world of anthropology, which is you know, the study of humans and the way that I became so interested in the study of humans was through our non-human primate kin. So the course was largely about conservation and how humans and non-humans share space and don't sometimes share space very successfully. And um, I, I, I didn't know the word anthropology in high school. I didn't really think about conservation. I've always been an animal lover, but what it meant to to do conservation, the practice of conservation and Bert opened my eyes to that. And so I, I added anthropology as a second major to um, English literature and went to Panama the next year uh, for a field course on an island um, and had my first experience in a tropical rainforest studying monkeys, um, capuchin monkeys and howling monkeys. And I was just wowed. Like the tropical forest to me, just everything was alive and vibrant. The colors were were sharper. The the rain made everything, you know, just feel more alive and richer and deeper. And um, it, it just really felt like I was in an Alice in Wonderland where, you know, just everything felt kind of um, larger than life and, and really beautiful. And, you know, despite the early mornings and the mud and the craning your neck up to see the monkeys way up in the tree, like everything just resonated with me. And I knew that this is something that I wanted to keep doing. So um, I graduated with English Lit and Anthropology as my two majors. I joined Bert. He invited me to Vietnam where he had recently started. He moved from paleontology to studying living extant primates. Um, and Vietnam happens to have some of the world's, you know, for the small size of the country, some of the world's most endangered primates live in, in Vietnam. 
And so um, I joined him there for three months after I graduated and helped him out on a field project um, studying the ontogeny or the growth and development of the locomotor behavior, the traveling behavior of three species of monkey, and just fell in love with it, fell in love with, with Vietnam, um, with my friends, my colleagues, the food, I'm vegetarian. It just, everything resonated with me there. Um, and also just the plight of the wildlife there beyond the primates, um, the plight of all humans. Again, going back to that first course in anthropology of humans and non-human animals trying to share space. And in this country, space is very limited. So how do humans successfully um, develop, put food on the table, be successful, you know, take care of their families while also caring for, in the case of Vietnam, really distinct animals that are found. It's called endemic, found only within that country. And, and it happens to have several primate species that are only found in that small country. So to me, it was just this great nexus of all these issues I cared about um, in one country. And I, I I knew that I would return to Vietnam. And so I stayed at, um, at CU Boulder and did my master's with Bert, working back in Vietnam. And then for my PhD, I went to Duke University, um, and continued to study collard beans, uh, leaf-eating monkeys in Vietnam, and then graduated. And a colleague, a German colleague of mine living in Vietnam, wrote me a hand letter, sent it from Vietnam. It arrived, oh gosh, you know, my last year at Duke saying, the Denver Zoo is hiring for a conservation biology position. You should apply. And so I went online. Sure enough, there was a job opening. And so um, I graduated from Duke and took a job out in Denver working in the conservation biology department at Denver Zoo. Uh, which allowed me, they were interested in developing an in situ or in, in location conservation program in Vietnam. So it was just, again, this like terribly serendipitous opportunity for me to take my particular set of experiences, skills, talents, connections, and leverage them to help Denver Zoo develop a program in Vietnam. So I was there for only 10 months because I had received a grant from the National Geographic Society to fund part of my field work in Vietnam. And so I had stayed in touch with the people who I met at National Geographic. They actually had come. The committee that evaluated my grant proposal came and visited my field site in Vietnam. We got in little bamboo boats together. I was able to show them this critically endangered monkey that was scampering along the, the limestone cliffs of the field site where I lived at dusk. I mean, it was just magical. And so um, they reached out to me. National Geographic, my program officer, reached out to me while I was working at Denver Zoo and said, I'm leaving. I know that you're interested in D.C. because you're interested in international biodiversity conservation and human rights and politics. And I had, I had made no bones about the fact that I was very interested in living in D.C. and working for a large international conservation organization. And so he reached out and told me he was leaving and I should apply. I did apply and I got the job. So 10 months after moving, 10, 11 months after moving to Denver for the job, my dog and I drove back across the country to D.C., and started a job at National Geographic in 2011. And um, I was there for three years, loved it, learned tons, and then kind of thought, um, you know, I'm ready to learn new stuff. And so I went to USAID. I applied for a AAAS, uh, American Association for the Advancement of Science, has science and technology policy fellowships, which places scientists within the federal government so that we can lend expertise to inform evidence-based decision-making. And in turn, scientists can learn, gosh, what it means to do federal policymaking and implementation, which is a lot to learn and very nuanced and super complicated and really very different from the life of, you know, a bench scientist, even very different from the life of somebody who's working in applied uh, science at an NGO. So I went to USAID. I was in the Office of Forestry and Biodiversity supporting, luckily again, the Vietnam mission and the Madagascar mission as they developed their um, biodiversity conservation portfolios. 
And I was there a year before National Geographic reached out to me, again, maintaining those good relationships, not burning bridges, reached out and said, we're developing a wildlife protection initiative. Would you be interested in coming back to National Geographic and leading this? And of course, I said, yeah, I would. It sounds like a huge job. But of course, I'm interested and and really um, honored to be asked. And so I came back to the society in 2015. And I have been at National Geographic since 2015. Um, Lots of changes there, but really great colleagues. I always feel like I'm learning and I'm challenged. And I'm able to be deeply involved in science and conservation and practice and getting to talk about issues that I care about to really broad and diverse audiences, which I think is really the best part about National Geographic is taking that science out to the public and to particular audiences where we have a kind of, I think, a very special way of of storytelling science, science telling in a way that um, really speaks to people and kind of opens them up to the beauty and wonder and importance of the natural world. So isn't it amazing sometimes that we don't know exactly how we find our calling? Totally. And then somehow through our journey, we just kind of meet different people. I think the best ones is when you don't like really kind of like go with too much intention and just kind of explore with, like you say, serendipity. So much serendipity and luck. Yeah. I totally agree with you, Ashley. And for me, like it was very important in my core. I know what my values are. I know what I care about. I know the types of issues that I want to be involved in. And I have known since um, an early age. And again, that goes back to animals. And I think my my understanding of what it means to kind of quote care about animals has just become more sophisticated. Um, and I, you know, from that early love of animals, it's grown into an understanding of the world is complex, challenges are immense. Um, and how can I lend my particular skills and expertise in a way that um, helps the world you know, in a small way, um, create space for the creatures that that make this world, you know, more wonderful for my son, that make this world um, possible for us. I mean, all the ecosystem services that pollinators provide, that clean watersheds provide, that forests provide. It's just a, it, it's grown from love of, of the world to really understanding that I need to go beyond love to to action. And yeah, but, but again, at that core, it, there's so much luck involved. There's so much, um, yeah, it is serendipity. Um, it's maintaining relationships with people and being kind to people. But at the end of the day, it also is allowing yourself to say yes to possibility, to say yes to new opportunities, while also knowing at your core what matters to you and, and recognizing the going off course a little bit is okay because you're gaining a set of experiences that's going to bring you back and bring you back as a fuller, uh, more experienced person um, to the next to the next opportunity, the next thing. So, yeah, I don't I don't think you can. You know, I don't, I really don't think I would, I know I would not be where I am today without a tremendous dose of luck and also people in more senior positions than I reaching back and saying, how can I help you? Taking the time to talk to me, um, offering me opportunities. Um, you know, and I, I really hope that I always remember to do that in turn, that it's worth it to answer that email from the undergrad or from the person looking for a job, or to make the connection, or to offer a colleague's email, um, ask them for an informational interview, because we have to network, we have to help one another. And I think all those things together, plus just like working your tail off, um, is, um, is, Absolutely. is <laughs> and a big part of it. And I think a part of it is that having wonderful mentors and people that believe in us before we can even believe in ourselves. When we're starting, um, 
I think a lot of time we don't really, we, we kind of like have our own blind spots, but other people just kind of take chances. Mm-hmm. I have those professors. So when you were talking mm-hmm. about bird, I was mm-hmm. like, I have my pride. Yeah. <laughs> no longer here. I was like, what exactly did you see me? I'm not quite sure. I'm so glad you did. <laughs> so it, so was just, it was just so amazing. And that's definitely like pay forward. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this virtual water cooler chat and to give voices. And for you, it's even more magnificent because you're giving voices, speaking to, to help those wildlife that just cannot speak for themselves. Mm. I actually did my homework. I listened to your concluding remarks of the combating wildlife trafficking oh, uh, with the AAAS. So I was like, oh, yes, I'm going to get to talk to Catherine today. Yay! <laughs> How, what makes Catherine unique? If you have to describe yourself, what makes you you? Oh, goodness. Well, I mean, I could take the easy way out and say we are all unique. Um, I mean, what makes me, what makes me different, you know, funky individual is my own particular blend of stubbornness, um, drive, determination. I think heart, um, like I feel very, uh, self-motivated, very self-driven, a perfectionist, um, to, you know, which is good to a sense because it drives you. It's also, um, not good because you have to remember to give yourself grace and, um, and, and extend that to others as well. What else makes me me? I mean, really at the end of the day, like I, I, the values, I'll go back to that those to me are extremely important. Um, like my values really, really guide me, um, in terms of, I mean, hope, hopefully most of the time they do in terms of the way I live on this earth, the decisions I make or or don't make, I guess that I, the decisions I do make, um, are really all fundamentally come back to a place of what I care about the most. And so, yeah, I think at the end of the day, that's what, that's what makes me who I am. That's wonderful. I think that is a great answer. I mean, I think, well, my dad used to say that, um, but my mom used to say that you're so stubborn. And my dad said, no, she's just principal. I was like, I like that answer. Oh, I like that. I like that way better. Oh my goodness. That is so much better. I'm going to say that from now on. I'm not stubborn. I'm principled. Yes. Yes, you are. Exactly. And I'll remind my, I'll remind my family of that too. Yes. <laughs> Um, so what aspects, what aspects of your job do you enjoy the most? Oh gosh, that's so easy. Um, I enjoy buckets um, of aspects of my job, just really huge, huge chunks of my job. I get deep enjoyment from, I mean, the first thing that came to my mind when you asked that immediately was the people, the people I work with, the team, um, that I lead, um, the team that I am on, you know, the, the team, it's the team, the team, the team, as my husband says about his, his favorite football team, you know, it really is the people who show up and it's the empathy and the accountability and the creativity and the solutions, um, that cohesion, um, the proactiveness, like the way that we have shaped our team is to come together and to show up for one another and for who we call our, our explorers, those are the grantees, the people we fund to do research, conservation, technology projects around the world. We show up to one another, we show up to them. And really we're showing up to the mission of National Geographic, which is to care about 
um, celebrate the wonder of the world. Again, I, I think at the, at the end of the day, it's a value um, how you choose to show up at work, how you choose to be there for the people who you're spending a lot of time with your coworkers. You spend a lot of time with them, um, whether it's on screens um, increasingly or, or in the office. You know, they're a huge part of my life. And I, I get such deep satisfaction from seeing my team members you know, grow and develop in their professional careers. I'm thankful that most of them have chosen to stay. Um, so I've been able to see their growth and really be able to support that growth and, and help to empower that growth and elevate them to be seen as the leaders they are across the organization. But eventually we'll mean them, you know, going beyond National Geographic and finding new new opportunities. And I'll support that as well, because I, I do think at the end of the day, that's really important for leaders to support and build the careers of others to go out just like I was lucky enough to have um, from, from mentors in the past to me. So the team is the first thing. You know, the other thing that I just deeply love about my job is I'm able to be curious all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I'm able to read scientific papers. I'm able to delve into the science of grant proposals. I'm able to to just take the the brain that was shaped you know, being in school for so many years. And I loved that. I loved being on the college campus and being exposed to so many different ideas and uh, reading a bunch and learning a bunch. And in my job now, I get to do that. And I love that. I love that I'm constantly learning, um, even being challenged um, by ideas because we cover such a broad remit of science. Um, there's there's so many different disciplines that I know very little about. And so to have the humility to just say that and to learn from team members, to learn from resources available to me, whether that's conferences or papers or um, grant proposals, whatever. Um, it's I, I love learning and I'm able to do that in my job and I really appreciate that. Um, and then, you know, the other part about my job I love is at the end of the day, it comes back to the values, the things that I'm able to support. You know, we're able to put money towards people and projects that are working to better understand and conserve the natural world and humanity. Um, And that's just a mission I care very deeply about. And so to spend the majority of my waking hours for work um, with that end goal in mind is is deeply satisfying. And to do it with people who make me laugh and inspire me and who are great teammates is just, it's all the better. So yeah, I'm at um, I'm at a particularly energized place in my job right now. I really feel like we're singing. There's tons of work to do, but um, we're in a really empowered and accountable place right now where we're getting a lot of great work done. And I feel really humbly proud of the team we've built and the work that we're accomplishing. So yeah, you you asked me at a great time and you know reflecting back on 2022 and all that we've accomplished this year. It's um, I'm feeling really good and really hopeful for 2023. And again, tons of work to do but um, really feeling energized to go and do it. Now, I know I know that you love reading books and podcasts and yeah. hearing about podcasts. I wonder if you have heard uh, and read like uh, Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, I, I follow Adam Grant on, I think it's LinkedIn, but I've not read his book. Okay. I would highly recommend um, either rethinking as a podcast, he does interview a quite a bit of people that are actually with very high profile, and, oh. but just really, really awesome messages. And one of the things that I really like, because I am very principled, as I just said. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Asking me to rethink whatever I believe to be true is huh. very difficult. But if you look at it from an intellectual perspective, and very few people could 
kind of like persuade me to that yeah. point. So uh-huh. I would actually, if you have some time, I would I would suggest like, you know, maybe read the book, think again, because um, it does open up some really interesting space for you to like, especially in leadership. Like mm-hmm. we want to be, I think traditionally leaders need to be, well, what we think leaders is like, we know exactly, we have our vision, we know where we are going. Sometimes we really don't. I mean, yeah. we have the general vision, but every day things changes, right? And how do you accept your team hmm. and their idiosyncrasies hmm. and then respect that while still navigating your overall mission? Or vision mm. of your organization. I like that. And so I think that was, I mean, that book kind of is one of the uh, one that actually started me thinking a lot about, um, you know, how to basically respect other people. But sometimes you cannot because it's really not in sync with what your core values are. Mm. So sometimes you just have to let it go. Being a good leader doesn't mean you agree with everyone on your team. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to like, have to realize that, hey, this is the energy leak. If I am actually doing everything and to people please this person or this people, then what would my great eight players think of me as yeah. a leader? Yeah. So those I think are that's some so well said. Yeah, I like that. And you, so that's good to know rethinking. I will check that out because um, I, I've actually heard quite a bit of good things about Adam Grant, um, his writing, you know, beyond the short things I see on LinkedIn. So I should check that out. Um, yep. You also mentioned the word dare. And that reminds me of Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. Um, yep. which I really like, and I just keep kind of a mantra of mine from that book is clear as kind. And I think about that a lot um, when we, especially like communicating to grant applicants, um, communication across our organization, communication, writing, clear is kind, right? If you want to say something, clarity in your words, clarity is important. Um, and it's it's kind because the person knows exactly what is being told to them, right? They know the expectations. They know um, for if it's grant, the eligibility, clear is kind. I love that from Brene Brown. But I think you're right too. And I, the whole idea of like, of course, the team's not always, I mean, I really love my team, but the team doesn't always sing and we're on the same page, right? We're not always in agreement. I don't think it's healthy to always be in agreement. We added new team members this year. I think it's important for new perspective, you know, different ways of thinking, challenging status quo. Um, I like that. We wanted that on our team. But also, you know, sometimes we kind of, I wouldn't say air grievances, but we air what's going on in a meeting. And then we have to just Elmo enough. Let's move on. Right. You get to a point where if you don't Elmo, you start to cycle and it becomes a negative cycle. And you're actually not then thinking about solutions. You're just vetching. Right. And so we, I I like to provide a safe space for people to air the grievances, but then we got to Elmo it and move on to the next thing and let's problem solve and get some, get some work done. So yeah, I mean, Ashley, that's great. And I, I I like books on leadership. I learn a lot from them. There's just so much to learn, so much to think about. You know, you got to bring humility to leadership because of course you don't have the answers. Of course you don't have the vision that's that's right all the time. And also I'm in a position where I have leaders above me with visions, right? So you have to find what are you contributing? How can you carve out something that feels right for your team, but also is supporting the the greater mission of, you know, the CEO and and my chief scientist. So 
yeah, that's that's all helpful what you just said. And I will I will look to um the Rethinking podcast and also his book. Thank you. You're welcome. I also love what I just learned, Elmo. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, let's move on. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's from my a former boss of mine, Tara Bunch, who no longer works the society, but she's such a smart, she's such a smart leader. And yeah, Elmo is I got it from her and I use it all the time. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, there's also another book. And so we are like basically two book lovers just talking about books. There's yeah. another book called um, Radical Candid, Candor by Ken Scott. Hmm. And it's basically, I think she was uh, at Google and um, at some point as a consultant. Interesting. I don't know. Yeah, so that was also a very good book recommended to me by uh, Mark Green, which is an executive coach. Um, and when I was having a little bit of um, uncertainty on how to deal and tiptoeing, tiptoeing around what needs to be said. Because hmm. I used to be, well, I'm still kind of a recovering people pleaser. So it's really difficult for me to make it like basically tell it like it is. Yeah. I don't, I don't consider myself being fake, but it's really cultural wise. I wasn't brought up to be like speaking my mind especially as a woman, you know? And so I'm already not as submissive as some of the traditional Asian women would be. And I'm really glad about the current women empowerment movement. How do you view the current women empowerment movement? And what, where do you think this movement will eventually take us as women professionals? I don't know that I see it apart from kind of a broader trajectory, a longer trajectory, one of um, female and um, female leaders from decades and generations before um, who started to, to, to break down barriers and, and blaze paths that we continue to build on today. So I don't see that. I, I don't think I see right now this particular time as something separate from or different from that. It's good, obviously, you know, as more women in leadership, um, a move toward gender equity, a move toward pay equity, you know, there's a lot of work to do. Um, we're not there. If you look at the latest, the COP27 and the COP15 pictures, um, uh, you should, you should, they show, you know, the heads of government, um, the African delegation that was just here in D.C. for the African, the, what was it, the African Summit, African Union Summit. I mean, you just look at all these pictures, the heads of leadership, and there's you know, one woman, two women you know, in the delegation. So there's a tremendous, globally, we have a, we have so, so much work to do. Um, we can go tour around the world and see right now what the women of Iran um, are, are fighting for, the people of Iran are fighting for, to have any type of, of liberty and, 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 and rights um, for women and beyond. So, you know, there's just so much work to do in our own country I think, I think it's good. Like we've made a lot of progress in so many ways. You know, Nancy Pelosi recently stepped down as the speaker and that was historic. National Geographic currently has in power, um, the first female CEO. Um, that's amazing. Um, you know, we have the first vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, who's a woman, you know, there's, there really are these, these exceptional people, um, who are the heads of, of government and of organization of civil society. It's all very good. Of course, I'm heartened by that as a woman myself, but there's just so much work to be done. So, um, you know, gender-based violence, you know, there's just, 
I get easily um, saddened and frustrated by just how much work there is to do um, in our country and globally. And yet, of course, you have to say that progress has been made. You just can't look back 100 years, 50 years and say that we haven't made progress because we certainly have. I think we, we, you know, we have to all keep being mindful. Um, and it's not just women, it's people who historically have not been in positions of power who have been um, either underrepresented or um, intentionally kept out of positions of authority and leadership. And just, you know, continuing to make the world the, the place that we want it to be for ourselves and, and certainly for, for others and for our children. I, I feel a lot of different things, obviously lucky that I've been given the opportunity and had the luck and the chance to be in the position I'm in and also recognizing that like we have a lot of work to do to make opportunities more equitable for more people in our country. I think one of the things I'm going to share a little bit of what my thoughts on this topic is. Good. Um, and the reason that why it's okay to be rambling because we are still in the process of formulating exactly how we feel about it because the, the visibility was not even there before and now all of a sudden it just like it just had to surge now i will share a little bit about like my grandmother my maternal side of the grandmother actually had her feet bound and she had like feet bound in traditional way of like basically controlling women so i have seen like how her feet were like actually deformed wow and i think sometimes it's really hard not knowing when when we are like kind of in a society that is a little bit more outcome de dependent and we keep trying to track progress and of course we get frustrated because it's hard for us to see the end in sight but if you're looking at way back like my grandparents first came to the states and because they came to the state it allowed us they sponsor us, like my parents, my cousins, and us to come. And that is actually for the people that actually were here before. And they pay, whether they realize it at the time or not, little by little, I think that they basically help us shape the life that we can actually live now. Mm. And we don't really know. And I think sometimes our frustration comes from we're not seeing immediate results. Mm. And chances are we're not going to see immediate results because there's just so many factors. But by the time, for example, all the work that women or men, it doesn't necessarily, in, in this particular uh, situation, we're talking about women empowerment, but there were a lot, there are a lot of men that are actually, you know, just as helpful in helping push yes you know this movement yes. so i don't necessarily want to discriminate one gender over the other i do want to see more sort of like movement toward gender and pay equality for women but like in my particular situation i'm a ceo of a company i come to the state when i didn't really speak much english I was made up, made fun of. And now I'm sitting here talking to you about women empowerment and having this virtual water cooler chat of a company that I created because, because of this opportunity and the platform, I can actually chat, give different women professionals a voice to talk about what they care about. 
I thought that awesome. that was pretty awesome. That's totally awesome. <laughs> it's totally awesome. But I think sometimes it's just like, it's really hard to look at like wildlife trafficking. And then it's like, we see the gruesome pictures. And of course we feel sad because if you're a sensitive person, you see the pictures, the pangolins, the elephant ivory, you know, the, you know, all this abuse of animals because people want to make a buck. It's so sad. It but at sad. the same time, it's for those people that are like with a huge heart like yourself and your colleagues and all the people that really care about the environment, the ecosystems that actually allow us to move forward. So when, you know, your son grows up, he will be in a better place because of the work that his mother did. Well, that is the hope. <laughs> that is the so, hope. <laughs> okay. What are some of the key lessons learned that you would like to share with our audience? I would say the first thing I, was, I would say, say yes to opportunities. Part of me didn't want to say yes to this, right? You know, nervous to put yourself out there and, and be recorded. And this has been such a delight. And I've learned from you and it's been warming to get to spend time with you. So say yes. I, I, I've thought of that throughout my career. As long as it's not dangerous, I think as we grow professionally, it's good to say yes to things because even if it doesn't work out the way you thought, it's an experience. You will learn from it. You might meet new people from it. Um, so where possible, um, say yes. I think the other thing, like the luck and serendipity um, of my own career has shown me just don't burn bridges, stay in touch with people. It doesn't mean you have to be in their inbox every day, but be kind to people and and keep relationships because you never know when somebody's going to have a connection or an idea or be able to reach out and help you. So um, really being able to extend that hand out to those coming behind you, those on the side of you, remembering, you know, we all have humanity and um, we're all in this together doing our best. And then lastly, um, I guess I would just say, be true to yourself, you know, know what matters to you. Um, it might be a word like anthropology you didn't know until you were you know, 18. Um, so it might take your path, your professional path in a different direction, but but know what matters to you at your core. And then um, if there's if there's divots and curves along the way, that's all fine. I think that's all great. Um, a good part of life to get those additional those additional curves, but always knowing where your North Star is and always knowing knowing what really matters to you, because I think that way you're you're going to feel like you're you're living your your truest self. Wow. That's an amazing summation, and I really did enjoy our chat. And I'm so glad you said yes. Mm-hmm.